Uh, and so if you have your Bible, I would actually invite you to take it up and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Um, it, it may be one of my favorite stories uh, because when I was younger, there was actually an animated movie uh, released in the theaters by DreamWorks called The Prince of Egypt. And The Prince of Egypt actually recalls and recounts this story of Exodus chapters 1 through 15. And so as I, I read this past week, these chapters, and as many of you did that are involved with the Eat This Book uh, uh, reading plan, you, you'll know that as I read, um, I couldn't help but think about the scenes that uh, had that I had witnessed as a child watching this movie, and so I absolutely love it. Uh, what I would like to do is actually pray for our time, and then we will just go ahead and dive right in. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, we pray now, Father, that you would penetrate our hearts through our mind. Father, I pray as we study uh, that we would take your word as you have provided and um, change our hearts, Lord, because of it. We just thank you for who you are and what you have done for us, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Uh, Last week, Randy Elliott did an excellent job walking us through the majority of Genesis. Uh, And he actually started in in Genesis 12, in verses 1 through 3, and this is where we see the covenant that uh, God had made with Abraham. Um, Specifically in verse 3, where it uh, is a promise that God makes to Abraham that he will bless all nations through him. He will bless all nations through his family. And so Randy went through... um, um, the lineage of Abraham and spoke about how uh, this covenant was passed down from Abraham to Isaac and then from Isaac to Jacob. And then he zeroed in on Joseph. He zeroed in on Joseph and spent the majority of time in, in Joseph. And we see as we come to the end of Genesis uh, that uh, there is a famine and God delivers Jacob and his 12 sons and their families out of the famine to Egypt. And he actually promises at the end of Genesis that they aren't going to stay there. There will come a day where I bring you back into, into your land that I have promised you. And so Randy's sermon last week essentially can serve as a prequel to our text today. Um, sorry about that. Uh, we, we find that uh, God had delivered Joseph's family from the famine, and we're going to look at what happened next, and uh, that, that part where God brings them back into their land, or at least the first part of it. Uh, typically when I preach, uh, I like to, at the end of the sermon, give one main point from the sermon. Uh, what, is, what is the one main focus from the, uh, from the sermon? And this week, I would actually like to give that to you up front to help you as we study, see the big picture as we look at just this broad overview of the first 15 chapters. And so um, in order to, uh, as we look at the 15 chapters in Genesis, um, I want you to remember this one key point, that God delivers his people in mighty ways. God delivers his people in mighty ways. God is committed to redeeming the human race through the human race by moving his mighty hand. And this is what you will see in the first 15 chapters of Exodus. It's a, it's a fairly familiar story, and so we're going to do a very broad overview, uh, but don't let that be a deterrent uh, from learning this morning, something that you may have not known before. Um, as we go through this overview, I actually want to zoom in on a conversation right in the middle uh, of kind of what's going on in the first 15 chapters 
chapters of Exodus, as this shows us how God intends to bring about his plan of salvation for the Israelites through one Israelite in particular. And so if you have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 1, I would like to read just the first seven verses to start. It says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And so we see uh, Joseph and his family of about 70 people uh, settle down in Egypt. Uh, and as we look at chapter 1, just these first seven verses, we see that his generation died away, but they were fruitful and they multiplied. They became a great nation in number. Um, starting with these 12 sons, uh, it's estimated, Randy last week had estimated that there were about 1.5 million Israelites residing in Egypt. Um, this is after the course of 350 years. Uh, from, from, from the time that Joseph and his brothers were there, 350 years go by, and that brings us to the beginning of Exodus, uh, with, with 1.5 million Israelites residing in Egypt. Uh, and so let's continue to read what happens. Verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, uh, and leave the country. Uh, if you recall, Joseph had a very good relationship with the king of Egypt, uh, but 350 years have passed, and new leadership comes new policies. Uh, this pharaoh does not know who Joseph is, nor does he care who Joseph is. All he cares about is what he sees in front of him. And what he sees in front of him is 1.5 million Israelites who aren't native to his country that could pose a potential threat. And so he decides to deal shrewdly with them. We see that they enslave the Israelites and they begin to oppress the Israelites. This is his way of dealing with this problem. If you were to read down, um, just to summarize chapter 1 for you, this plan actually doesn't work. In fact, they continue to multiply and they continue to bear many children. And so because he is threatened, he implements genocide. This king of Egypt decides that the only way that we can take care of this growth is to get rid of the Israelites altogether. And so he issues an order. He says every Israelite boy that is to be born is to be thrown in the Nile River. We're going to kill off the Israelites' offspring so that they don't grow to an even larger number. And so we can see for the Israelites, the beginning of Exodus looks very, very bleak. Um, you can see that they, you could probably hear the echoes of the Israelites calling out to, the, to, to their God, saying, God, where are you? Where is this promise that you gave Abraham? I've never seen you. I've never heard of you. Where is this so-called plan of salvation? I, I don't see it. I don't see it. I find this in my life uh, at times, and, uh, and I would think that you would as well. When uh, things are particularly hard, we can go to God and ask him where he is. It can feel like he's not there. 
Um, the Israelites would have done well to listen to our sermon from last week in Genesis and the story of Joseph, if they remembered the story of Joseph, because the key focus, if you remember what Randy spoke um, last week, um, he, he zeroed in on one key focus, and it was just this. There will be times in our lives when things get worse before they get better. There will be times in our lives when things get worse before they get better, even though you are obeying God. But that does not mean that God is not with you. Randy was specifically speaking of Joseph, uh, but the same principle could be applied right now to the Israelites. For the Israelites, this might feel very much like one step forward, two steps back. And our life can feel that, but I want you to know that don't think for a moment that your chaotic life takes God by surprise. Don't think for a moment that your chaotic life, for some reason, overburdens God. No, God has a timetable, and his timetable is not our own. And you can see that if you were to turn to Jeremiah 29. You don't have to turn there. But in verse 11 of Jeremiah 29, we see God speaking to the Israelites later on um, in their history. They're actually in exile at this point. And, And he promises them something. He says, For I know the plans... I have for you. For I know the plans I have for you. Once again, the Israelites were calling out to him, and God simply reminds them, I have a plan for you, and I know them. Emphasis on the fact that God himself, once again, has a timetable for the Israelites that may not be their own, but he is in complete control. He's in complete control. And you know what? God does have a plan for the Israelites as we sit at the beginning of Exodus. He has a plan to deliver the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians. And it comes in the form of a baby in Exodus chapter 2. So let's go ahead and take a look at Exodus chapter 2. We'll we'll visit the first ten verses. It says this, Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Who she saw that he, uh, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse a baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I hope that you can see the irony of these first ten verses. The the Nile River would have been a, a horrific scene to an Israelite woman as Egyptian officials would throw their newborn boys into this water. This would have been a horrifying scene. Yet out of the ashes, out of this agent of death, God uses this river as a part of his plan of salvation. We see this baby that was sentenced to death 
land in the lap of none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. I can't imagine what the conversation would have been like or even if Pharaoh was aware of this between his own daughter who wanted to keep this Egyptian baby because she felt compassion for him. Talk about all of the people or all of the things that could have had this baby. He lands in the lap of one who is compassionate for him. And so his name is Moses because she drew him up out of the water. And Moses grows up under Egyptian royalty for 40 years. If you were to look at Acts chapter 7, verse 22, you would actually see uh, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, talking about Moses. And he claims in verse 22 that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Moses had all of the luxuries of growing up in one of the most intelligent in privileged cultures of the time. And so the story continues. After 40 years, Moses is a grown man, uh, and he carries on as an Egyptian, essentially, uh, until one event changes the course of Moses' life forever. Let's look at what it says, chapter 2, 11 through 14. It says this. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought what I did must have become known. And so Moses is walking about and all of a sudden he sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he decides to implement his own form of justice. By killing the Egyptian, he feels like he is relieving the Israelite. The very next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting and he pleads with them to stop fighting with each other. You, you guys are on the same side. What are you doing? Why are you fighting? And the man turns to him, almost ill-tempered, and says, Who are you to judge us? Who are you to judge us? And it would not be too far of a stretch to translate this to say, Who made you our deliverer? By what authority do you have to judge us, to deliver us, to help us. And I want you to remember that. I want you to tuck that into the back of your head because we will revisit that later on. And so upon hearing this and hearing that Pharaoh is out to to murder Moses, he flees to Midian. Midian is about 250 miles southeast of Egypt and he goes to uh, run away from his problems and forget everything that had ever happened. And there he settles. He finds a young lady and he marries her and he has children and he ends up working uh, for his father-in-law actually and so he has decided he is going to run away and hide out the rest of his life and so um, we flash forward another 40 years so he was 40 years in Egypt 
at 40 years old. He flees to Midian, and he's there for another 40 years uh, settled. And, and what, while Moses has seemed to forgot about his, his troubles and has seemed to forgotten about the Israelites' troubles, God remembers. Israelites are still crying out to God, and God remembers. And at this point, Moses probably um, doesn't think he'll ever return to Egypt. That ship has sailed, he's settled. Uh, But as we read, we know that Moses and God are on a collision course with each other. Moses and God are on a collision course with each other, and this is where I want to zoom in, uh, because this conversation really speaks to God's character. And I've been brought up to believe that whenever we approach Scripture, the first question we should always ask in our study is, what does this teach us about God? If there is ever a time you struggle in your studying of God's word, ask the question, what does this teach me about God? Because we won't learn about who we are until we learn about who he is. And so let's take a look. We're going to start uh, in chapter 2, verse 23. And I'm going to read all the way through chapter 3 of verse 10. It says this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the, priests, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." God was determined to save the Israelites. When Moses was determined to forget all about him, when Moses chose to run away and forget, God remembered. God remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham. And so we see Moses carrying about his usual duties when God bursts bursts forth onto a scene in spectacular fashion in the form of a burning bush, but not just any burning bush, a bush that burned but didn't burn away. In a sense, we see this flame, this fire is self-sustaining. It doesn't need the wood to fuel the fire. 
And this really speaks to God, the attribute that God himself is self-sustaining. He doesn't need anybody or anything to flame and to burn. And Moses sees this sight and he goes forward and um, God explains to Moses that he has heard the cry of the Israelites and he's going to do something about it. He says that I am coming down to rescue my people. And at this point, Moses might be thinking, well, it's about time, God. Where have you been for the last 400 years? Those people have been crying out to you. They have wondered where you are and now you're going to finally show up. And God says, yes. And then he actually shares with Moses probably the most frightening words that Moses has ever heard in his entire life. Moses, I'm sending you. Go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. So go. And we see that Moses immediately objects. He might have looked to God and said, this must be some kind of mistake. I think this is some kind of mistake. And I think we could relate to Moses, honestly, because we enjoy our comfortable lives. We enjoy uh, going about our normal routine. And um, I think it's interesting how we all want to see God work in amazing ways as long as it doesn't inconvenience us. It's amazing to me that I think we would all agree, in fact, that we want to see God work in our lives. We want to see God work in this church. We want to see God work in Erie. We want to see God work in the world as long as I can stay seated in my comfortable chair, in my comfortable life. And so Moses objects, much like probably we would. And the first excuse that he gives, well, who am I? Who am I that should go to Pharaoh? Do you remember what they did to me? Pharaoh, uh, the, the former Pharaoh, he wanted to kill me. The Israelites wanted nothing to do with me. They will run me out of town just like they did before. And God responds by saying, I will be with you. I will go with you. I won't leave your side. In other words, it's not who you are, Moses. It's who I am. I'm going to be the one with you. When I was younger, about nine or ten years old, uh, my, my dad and I, we went on a baseball trip to uh, New York and Philadelphia. And during our time, we actually spent a lot of time on the subway in uh, New York City. Now, if you have ever uh, been on the subway in New York City, you'll, you'll know that it's a very uh, strange place. It's just scary things happen on the subway in New York City especially for a nine or a ten-year-old. And so when we had returned home from our trip, we had a family friend over, and I was telling him all about the trip, and he looks at me and he says, Michael, weren't you scared on the subway? Weren't you scared to be on the New York City subway? And I looked at him and I was like, no, because I had my dad. That's how I responded to him. No, because I had my dad, because at nine and ten years old, I knew that my dad was Superman. And he could take on the thugs blindfolded and his hands tied behind his back. And frankly, he didn't need to prove it. His mere presence was enough for me to feel safe. I later found out that my dad was terrified. Oh, (laughs) Much like many of your faces. Uh, But I knew at the time that my dad could handle it. My dad could handle it. And so this is what Moses needs to understand about God. If Moses truly knew who God was, if he truly knew who God was, this would be enough for him. This would have been enough for him. But it wasn't. 
It wasn't enough for him, so he actually continues. Moses doesn't uh, seem to see much validity behind telling the Israelites, hey, the the God of your nations and your forefathers has spoken to me. And so he actually asks uh, God for a name. Who should I tell them sent me? Not only does he have a lack of confidence in himself, but he also has a lack of confidence in the Israelites' perception of him. The, The first objection probably would have sounded like this. You know, God, I don't think I can do this. And now the second objection sounds something like this. Not only can I not do this, but nobody else thinks I can do this either, God. So you, you're frankly, you're wasting your time. Give me a name, God, so I can prove to them that you have actually come to me in this nature. And God responds to Moses once again. And he shares his name as, I am who I am. I am who I am. Such a peculiar name. Just yesterday, um, I was watching The Prince of Egypt, the movie that I had referenced earlier with my three-year-old daughter, Ella. Um, it's, once again, it's a great movie, fairly accurate, uh, and I really enjoyed watching it with my daughter. Uh, and we came to this part in the movie where the burning bush is speaking to Moses. And the burning bush says to Moses in the movie, My name is I am who I am. My name is I am who I am. And my daughter turns around on the bed and looks at me with the most puzzled look on her face. With the most puzzled look on her face, she says, what did he say his name was? What's his name? What, what is his name? I've got a little theologian on my hands, three years old, asking me this question. Imagine what it would have been like to explain this to a three-year-old. Uh, but it's really, really important that we understand this. And so before I go further, I'm actually going to grab one of the other mics because I don't want you to miss this point. Give me a second. This, this point is too important to miss. And in order to understand what God is doing, we have to first look at exactly what he said and what it means in that culture. Okay, if you were to translate this literally from Hebrew into English, you would get four consonants. There, there were no vowels in Hebrew language. You will get Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. We have since um, added vowels to this in the English language to come up with the name Yahweh. Yahweh. But what God tells Moses are these four consonants, Y-H-W-H. It's a literal translation. It's an unpronounceable name. It's an unspeakable name. And so as English translators have taken the Bible, you will actually see that anytime they use the divine name, you will actually see the word LORD in all caps. Whenever you see LORD in all caps, they are using this idea of this divine name. And so God gives Moses an unspeakable name, an unpronounceable name, and that is exactly the point. Because if you look in this culture, names are extremely important. Nowadays, when we choose names, we might choose them because they sound good with our last name. We may look through the baby book and we just like how it looks on paper. Perhaps it's a family name that you want to be passed on from generation to generation. Those are just several reasons why we choose the names that we choose. In this culture, in biblical era though, names were extremely significant. 
because they summarized or defined who you were as a person. Your name told people who you were as a person. And so when God gives Moses an unspeakable, unpronounceable name, what he is saying to Moses is this. Moses, there is no name that you could call me that would ever be able to define how great and how mighty and how powerful I am. There is no name that you could give me that will encapsulate who I am. And so just tell them, I am who I am. If you want to know who I am, watch what I do. Watch what I do. And he actually does this in verses, uh, he explains this in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 3. It says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And so what God is saying here is that it is going to take a mighty hand to compel Pharaoh to let your people go. That mighty hand is my hand. I will stretch out my hand and I will compel Pharaoh and I will show you the amazing things that I can do. And then, and only then, when Pharaoh knows who I am, he'll let my people go. Moses continues to object. What if they don't believe me? God provides him signs. What do I say? I'm not much of a speaker. And then God gets really frustrated at this point. I will be your mouthpiece. I will be your words. I will put the words. I will teach you what to say, is what he he actually says. I will teach you. What God is basically saying is, Moses, you're not understanding it. It's not you who is doing the work. It's me. I am going to do the work. I am going to show you great works. I am going to be the one that delivers those out of Egypt, the Israelites, my people out of Egypt. And so go, because I'm going to use you. Eventually Moses is out of excuses and he just says, send somebody else. Just just send somebody else. Can't, Can't somebody else do this? And God says, no, pick up your staff and go. Pick up your staff and go because I'm going to do amazing things through you. I'm going to do amazing things with you. You see, Moses Moses can't do what God is asking him to do until Moses has a clear understanding of who God is. Moses cannot do and go to Pharaoh what he needs to do until he looks to God and he understands, God, this is who you are and I trust you. At one point, um, God tells Moses that uh, as a sign, you're going to come back to this mountain with your people and you're going to worship me when this is all said and done. And you're going to remember, you're going to remember that I keep my promises. And he does. And he does. You see, when Moses murdered the Egyptian man to relieve this Israelite, he was doing it on his own authority. And so rightfully so, the following day, when the Israelite asks Moses, who are you, by what authority are you to judge us or to deliver us, it was on Moses' own authority. This time, when Moses goes back, It is no longer his own authority, but the authority of God Almighty and his mighty, compelling hand. That is the authority that Moses can now go back under, is the authority of God himself. 
And so Moses does go to Pharaoh with uh, this with this new authority, God Almighty. And uh, we actually look in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, where this is the first instance that Moses goes to Pharaoh. And what does it say? It says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. You see, Pharaoh is asking this question, by whose authority do you have to come into my presence and ask me to let your people go? Who's this God? I don't know who this God is. And so, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And so, once again, once again, you can almost sense that God is... um, God is actually turning to Pharaoh and saying, do you want to know who I am? I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you who I am. And so we see actually from chapters 7 through 11, these plagues, these plagues of judgment that God has on the Egyptians, all to show how powerful and how mighty he is and the kind of authority that he is. You want to know who I am? Watch what I do. Watch my hand. And I want to focus just on the last plague, the plague of the firstborn. God actually tells Moses after this plague, because, you know, we go through nine plagues and and Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And then God tells Moses, hey, we're going to do one, we're going to do one more plague. And it's going to be after this. Pharaoh will let you go. And it's the plague of the firstborn. He tells Moses to prepare the Israelites because he is going to send this angel of death. He himself is going to uh, kill off the firstborn male of every single family. But in his graciousness and his love for the Israelites, he provides a way out. And he tells them, kill a spotless lamb. Sacrifice a spotless lamb. Paint the blood on the doorframe and the angel of death. I will pass over you. This is where we get the term Passover from. And so God's judgment comes down in the form of death but he graciously provides a way out, an escape for, uh, for the Israelites. And we might think that this is a great Old Testament story, uh, but it actually goes so much further than that. It's a great act of God's salvation for the Israelites, but what this does is introduce a theme that's going to occur throughout the entire Bible. And what we see here is God introducing how he saves. He saves by substitution. He saves by substitution. You live because somebody died. The Israelites lived because the lamb died. Life comes through death. And if you haven't made the connection yet, let me make it for you. Right here, God is foreshadowing and and showing how he is to bring out his plan of salvation. Not just with the Israelites in the Old Testament, but with mankind throughout all of history. God is asking the Israelites to trust the sacrifice that it's sufficient enough to save them. And now he's asking us to do the same thing as humankind. Because this points straight to Jesus. This points straight to Jesus, a man who died as a sacrifice or a substitute for us on our behalf. And just as there was a physical threat of death to the Israelites, there is a spiritual threat of death to us as human beings. 
We're sinful and we're rebellious to God. And we've been separated from God. And the only way to be saved out of that is a substitution. Somebody to die in our place, even though we deserve it. And this is where Jesus comes in. And so let me ask you, let me ask you, do you trust Jesus' sacrifice? That it's enough? Do you trust that Jesus as a substitute is good enough for God? Because we see in Scripture, and as we eat this book, and we read through the book, as we just pour into the pages of the Bible, we will see that Christ's sacrifice, his substitute for us, is enough. And all you have to do is trust that sacrifice. This is how God displays his mighty hand in our life, by sending Jesus a perfect man to die in our place. Pharaoh had firsthand experience with God's mighty hand. Pharaoh experienced God uh, in a way most of us never will. And so at the end of these 10 plagues, Pharaoh says, I've had enough. Go, get out of here before you cause us any more trouble, before your God does more mighty things, just leave. And so the Israelites pack their bags and they make their way out of Egypt a grand exodus. And not too long after, they come up to the Red Sea. In the meantime, what they don't realize is Pharaoh has had second guesses. He decides, wait a minute, I think I want them back. And so he brings his army together and he attacks the Israelites. And when the Israelites see Pharaoh and his army coming, they start to panic. I love this because I feel like I can relate to the Israelites. In chapter 14, verse 11, you'll actually see the Israelites crying out to Moses and crying out to God, is this why you brought us here? Because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? You've just brought us out to the desert to die? I see myself in this, that whenever things take us a turn for the worst, automatically we begin to question God. Because frankly, with the sea in front of them and the army behind them, they're, they're as good as dead. There's nothing that they can do. And so if God was to truly save them, he would have to do something more mighty than the ten plagues. He would have to overcome in a great way. And you know what? He does. God shows up in a fantastic way. He parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk on dry ground, and he doesn't stop there. As the Egyptian army is walking through or running through, he crashes the waves down upon them. And in one fell swoop, In one swift and sudden attack, God destroys the Egyptians. He delivers the Israelites out of Egypt and he takes care of their enemies. And this is what we see. This is what we see in our own lives, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, in one fell swoop, in a sudden and swift attack, all of our enemies All of our sin has been taken care of. If you trust that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. God is faithful to the Israelites in an incredible way, and he delivers them with with his mighty hand. And so what do we do in response to this as 21st century Christians? Exodus 14, verses 30 to 31 says this, and I'll close with this. It says this. We'll actually start in verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. 
That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. See, God not only needed to outstretch his mighty hand to compel Pharaoh, but also to compel the hearts of the Israelites. The Israelites saw the great power of God and they put their trust in him. They saw the great power of God and they put their trust in him. And so it's my prayer that as we continue to eat this book, as we continue to dive into scriptures this year, that you would see God's mighty hand and it would compel you to put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But it isn't until you know who he is that you'll find out who you are.